who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forevermore. From Psalm 73, thank you, Jeff, for leading us so well. Before we get started, um, that particular psalm and that song, which uh, Jeff had planned and he didn't know where we were heading, um, but as I was praying for this morning, I just have this sense that some of us in this room, our heart and our flesh has failed. We're in a place where life has been really hard. Feeling the insurmountable weight of our circumstances bearing down on us. And we come into this place putting on our good Midwestern smile, knowing that we come in here, check the box, and then we go back home. But the church, God's people, we are called to bear one another's burdens. We are called to lift one another up in prayer. We are the ones to be the encouraging body to those who are hurting. Paul is pretty explicit in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the letter, excuse me, but Paul's pretty clear that if one member suffers, so the rest do. And so with the time that we have left, well, not with the time we have left, because I'm going to preach too, but at this time, I feel like this would be a really good time for us to just lift one another up in prayer. And so if you just want to pray in the quiet of your seat, you're more than welcome to do that. I want to also give another invite. If you're that person and you feel like your heart and your flesh has failed, 2024 has just kicked you in the teeth. And you want other people to pray for you because you might not have the words to say. And if that's you, I would love for you to just slip up your hand. There's going to be people around that would love to pray with you. You don't need to disclose all of your dirty laundry here this morning unless if you feel led to. But if you are going through a hard time, this is the place. This is the place where we can come before our God, confess our weakness, confess our failure, confess our hardship, and that we can come before him with our church family and to lift you before the very throne of God to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So if that's you, and you want people to pray for you and with you, if you don't mind slipping up a hand, because let's be honest, none of us are perfectly walking this life out, and we want to pray with you. I know it's bold. But if you've been in that place, and you are in that place, and you want some people to pray with you, now would be the time to slip up your hand and we'll move around you, I promise. It'll be great.
Yeah, if you saw a hand raised, you're more than welcome to move, put a hand on a shoulder and pray for some people. That would be beautiful. Anyone else? Because my words on an iPad might not change things, but lifting people up before the very throne room of God can. And that's what this space is for. Thank you. Okay, let's go before the Lord together. Lord Jesus, when you were enduring the hardest night of your life, you didn't hide but you invited your disciples to pray alongside you. As you were in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out before your heavenly Father, that you invited the disciples to pray with you. And so God, in these moments, for those people who are going through through their hard times, been crying out to you, O God, in the midst of grief and pain and sorrow and hurt and confusion. You are not the God who is distant. You are the God who is near. And I pray that your nearness would be made known to those who are struggling and hurting and grieving. That even in these moments that they would encounter you, the good shepherd. And Holy Spirit, you are the comforter, the counselor. And I pray that you would be those things in this place to those that need it. Even as we move into the proclamation of your word and look at the Sermon on the Mount, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your will and your way done in this place. You would heal the things that need to be healed, that you would, that you would come alongside us, make your presence known, bring peace that passes all understanding. And would you open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning? Would we be good listeners, but even better doers of your word? We love you. The space is yours. And we pray these things in your sweet and precious name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, we are in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. So let's talk for a second as you turn there. Let's talk for a second about assumptions. Whether you would like to admit it or not, we all make assumptions. Whether that's assumptions that you're in the workplace, and if you work hard enough and your boss sees you, that you will get the promotion that you think you deserve. Some of you assume that if you have a friend that gets two tickets to the like music group that you enjoy, and if your friend leaves you out of that group, that you are less loved or valued. Some of you might assume that life will get easier or better if you had this or that or fill in the blank and connectionites that are married. When was the last time you made an assumption about your spouse that ended extremely well? But here's the thing about assumptions. They're not based on fact. 
Assumptions are based on your interpretation or somebody else's interpretation of somebody else's actions or words. Because if assumptions were true, they wouldn't be assumptions, they would be fact. And we even enter this space and we have our own assumptions about faith, about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the church, fill in the blank. We can assume that faith in Jesus will make your life easy. We can assume that our preferences will be met at this church or that church or else we'll leave. We can assume that the historical and factual accounts in the book of Acts cannot happen in our midst or maybe we don't even want them to happen. Assumptions about the kingdom of God are ploys from the enemy to create division and fear where Jesus longs for unity and boldness. I'll say that again. Assumptions about the kingdom of God are ploys from the enemy to create division or fear where Jesus longs for unity and boldness. In church family, we don't have to wonder or make assumptions about our Lord because we have this as a guide, source of all truth. We don't need to make assumptions about who Jesus is or who the Holy Spirit is or what the church is supposed to do. We have this as our guide. And we no longer have to make assumptions when it comes to Jesus because we must seek him in all things. Assumptions are broken and turned to fact when you don't lob grenades on the other side, but you actually engage in conversation with the one you're having assumption about. And so if you have assumptions about Jesus, church, faith, fill in the blank, get to know them more. And for us in this space, would we get to know Jesus more? So we don't have to make assumptions about who he is or what he's come to do, that we personally would get to know him more. Whether you've been following him for five minutes or five decades, there is an endless pursuit of Jesus. He is a well that never runs dry. And we no longer have to make assumptions about Jesus because he's available to us. And at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is beginning to address some assumptions the crowd most likely would have had. Whether it was about him or the law, Jesus begins by addressing some assumptions. And in this passage in particular, he begins with his first assumption. Verse 17, if you have your Bibles open, let's dive into verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Don't think often translated assume. So don't assume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That word abolish is the Greek word kataluo. I'm not expecting you to know that for the quiz at the end. But the word, the word kataluo means to dissolve, destroy, or to demolish. So what Jesus is already getting at here is the assumption that maybe some of the crowd was assuming that he was going to get rid of the law and the prophets. That because Jesus was here and as he preached about this kingdom among us, that the kingdom of God has come near to repent and believe the good news because of that proclamation that now the law and the prophets has no need. And that this, this guy named Jesus would maybe create this new code of ethics for God's people that wasn't bound to the law or the prophets. 
That might have been their assumption, but once again, remember what assumptions are. Assumptions are our interpretation of someone else's actions or words because they had heard a lot about Jesus up to this point. Some of them would have been neighbors, friends. Jesus had already begun his earthly ministry. He had already healed the sick, cast out demons. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He was led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. And he had already been like 30 plus years old. So most of the people would have known him. And they knew that Jesus was special. There's something different about him. And so they had the assumption that he was going to come and to get rid of, to demolish or destroy the law or the prophets. The passage goes on to say, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Not to edit, add to, subtract, but to fulfill. That word fulfill in the Greek is pleruo, which means to bring to realization. So Jesus, just to state it this way, Jesus came to bring to realization the law and the prophets. The words that were on a scroll or the things that were supposed to be lived out, Jesus is saying, I am the embodiment of those things. I am going to perfectly fulfill and live out and to bring to realization all that the law and the prophets were pointing towards. Which begs the question, what is the law? What are the prophets? Who are the prophets? Because if Jesus came to fulfill it, and if we believe all that Jesus said about himself, we need to understand what the law and the prophets are before we move forward. So, 11 times throughout the New Testament, the law and the prophets were grouped together. And the reason why is because Jesus's audience would have understood the law and the prophets together, meaning the entirety of their scripture, which is what we call the Old Testament. The law was the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then they would have understood the prophets being Joshua and onward. And so Jesus isn't saying, I didn't just come to fulfill the law or just the prophets. He came to fulfill them both. There's a uniqueness within the law and within the prophets that Jesus came to fulfill. And for some of you who have maybe done your reading through the Bible in a year plan, most of you are probably in like what, Leviticus, Numbers-ish. No one's reading through the Bible in a year to confirm or deny. That's fine. Deuteronomy, thank you for whoever said that so boldly. I don't know if you're ahead or behind, but that's for you and the Lord. What's that? She's on track. So you're supposed to be in Deuteronomy. If you've read through the law, or you read through the prophets, hear me loud and clear, church family, there's some odd stuff in there. The people that have laughed have read this stuff. But what Jesus here is addressing isn't just those little specific things, but he's getting at the heart behind why the law and the prophets are here. Jesus didn't fulfill the law and the prophets so you could like eat meat with blood in it or have tattoos or fill in those like random laws that you read in the book of Leviticus. But Jesus came not just to fulfill those tiny little things, but to fulfill all of it. 
So let's break this down a little bit of what the law and the prophets specifically in a broader, specific and broad, what it means for us. The law shows us that we need something outside of ourselves in order to be made right with God. We're confronted with the price of our sin and the cost of holiness. It's hard to read through the first part of Leviticus and all that's required to atone for our sin without understanding the severity of the cost of our sin. Then the prophets go on and they speak and they write to show us that God was actively participating and directing his people to be reminded of the law and the prophet's ultimate call was repentance. That the law was set in place and God's people had a tendency to wander and the prophets were saying, go back here, come back. God is good, his way is good. He is faithful, he's just. If you follow in the way of God, not that life will be easy, but that your life will have fulfillment and contentment in him. And the prophet's call was to remind them and to shift them back to God's perfect law. Because God's law, his revelation to the prophets, both then and now, is good. I know it's hard because we see the obscure laws and stuff that seem outdated, but the law and the prophets in and of themselves with the intention that God had for them, his heart behind the law and the prophets was good and still is good. To quote Dallas Willard, he said this, God's law is an unspeakably good and precious thing and that to live within it is to live the life that is eternal. To be sure, law is not the source of rightness, but it is forever the course of rightness. Meaning that the words on this page or the words for the Jewish people at that time, the words of the Old Testament was not the source of rightness, but it was the course. If they abided by and followed what God had intended for them, the law and the prophets were not the end. God is. God is the chief end of obedience to him, not just merely adhering to words on a page. But it points us in a good direction. It points us towards God, towards his love his peace, his grace, his goodness, his justice, and his mercy. So we've talked about the law and the prophets, talked about why they exist, especially for the Jewish people, but then the question has to be asked, how did Jesus fulfill it? Just because you say something doesn't mean it's true. You have to embody it and live it out. And so Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. Because remember, the law shows us that we need something outside of ourselves in order to be made right with God. Ultimately, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we now can be right with God forever and ever. That we no longer have to continually go back to the priest, like we don't have an altar here and me and Jordan have to like bring your farm animals here, do animal sacrifices to atone for your sins. This isn't that church. If you're curious if this is that church, it's not that church. But this is a place where we believe that the work of Jesus by defeating the penalty of our sin has forever been paid. That this is a place where we believe in that salvation that Jesus has paid for us. 
The price of the law has been paid for through Jesus' perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. And his life modeled to perfection obedience to God through the law. And then Jesus came to fulfill the prophets because Jesus continually reminded his people of God's law to live it out, to to ultimately model the law for us. Jesus modeled for us perfect submission and obedience to God. And as was stated in Deuteronomy chapter 18, as Moses, looking forward to the Messiah, said that a prophet like him, meaning Moses, from among your own brothers would rise up and you must listen to him. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I commanded him. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. passage goes on in verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Let's ask another question. What does it mean when Jesus said, when all things are accomplished? Was it his finished work on the cross or the defeating of death? Was it the closing of the canon of scripture? Was it Y2K? Just throw back for some of us that are maybe a little bit older. All things are accomplished, meaning when Jesus comes back to rule and reign as he promised, the fulfiller of the law and prophets, our Messiah, Savior, King, is one day going to come back to fully redeem and restore all of creation unto himself and to redeem and restore those who have placed their hope and faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. When Jesus comes back, that is when all things will be accomplished. Revelation 21 says, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband until that day, which will be a most glorious and a beautiful day for those who are found in Christ. That is when all things are accomplished. And until that happens, not the smallest letter, one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law. Yes, there's grace and grace alone, but we are called to live a righteous life, a life that is set apart, a life fully and wholly dedicated to the way of Jesus. Let's get to verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven of heaven. With that passage behind me and with that in mind, uh, we're going to quickly get through this one because we got a lot to unpack in verse 20. With verse 19 in mind, Jesus continues to preach. He gives us a warning and an admonition. And through both of these, it can be summed up in this thought. Your words and your actions matter. Because if you claim to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, 
You are commissioned one, for Philippians chapter one, verse 27 says, you are commissioned to live a life worthy of the gospel. And you are called through the great commission to teach them to observe everything Jesus has commanded us. Church family, we are called to live out word and deed. Like the passage doesn't explicitly say, therefore whoever breaks one of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's those who break the command and teaches others to do the same. And in the inverse way, and hopefully, Lord willing, the way that we go, that we live out the righteous life and we teach others to abide in that. And that maybe the way that we live our life would be the convincing factor for others to see that maybe the righteous life we're living is the life that we were meant to live anyways. We're not just supposed to talk about it. We don't just post on Facebook about it. We don't just complain to our coworkers about it. We're supposed to talk the righteous life, talk in a way that Jesus would be honored and we are called then to live it out, to live a life worthy of the gospel, set apart for Jesus and Jesus alone, we are called to use our words to instruct others to do the same. Let's get to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This is the verse in this section that the audience listening would have went home to dinner, sat around the plate, broke their bread, passing the cup, and they would have been like, man, you remember when Jesus said that? And that would have been the roundtable discussion of like what Jesus would have meant, or man, that's pretty harsh, or I don't really understand this or that. Like this is one for that audience that would have raised plenty of eyebrows, gotten plenty of gasps, and the like side conversations while Jesus continues preaching about these things, they would have been like, did he really say that? Are you serious? The scribes and Pharisees. This would have been the one that probably in this section would have gotten the people going. Because righteousness according to their perspective, their assumption was that righteousness was a barometer that these men set, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the ones in that culture that were looked to as an example of righteousness. And because the Pharisees and scribes had a public ministry and their righteousness was on display for all to see, and later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of gets after some of that. We'll save that for future weeks. But the Pharisees and scribes were the ones publicly to display their righteousness. And for the crowds, they would have only seen the righteous deeds that they had done and been like, I I can't do that. These are like full-time, basically professional Jews who are doing the work. They're doing the stuff. They're saying the things. And on the outside, it looked like that is a standard that I cannot attain. They were the ones rightly holding and teaching the law. They were the ones who had memorized the entire Old Testament Like I said, there's some obscure stuff. They memorized it all. 
So did Jesus set them up for a standard that they knew that he wouldn't be able to keep? Did he give us an unattainable goal to have a righteousness that didn't just meet the scribes and Pharisees, but that surpassed it? But what if that's a wrong way to frame this verse? What if their eyes were fixed on the wrong thing? They were looking at their barometer of righteousness according to the scribes and the Pharisees, but that's not what Jesus has intended for his people. And to bring this down to us for a little bit, we often look to faith leaders, pastors, podcasters, pick whoever you want. And we put those people on a pedestal And we see their outward work and we assume that their righteousness far surpasses ours. They can preach a good message. They can have a great conversation with somebody else or that person posted a YouTube short and they saved somebody or whatever. We often compare by the external, by somebody else's righteousness and we think, I can't have my righteousness. Like God knows me. He knows my thoughts. He knows my actions. He knows my sins. He knows my shortcomings. I can't meet that. But what if, church family, our eyes has been on the wrong prize? What if our eyes has been on the wrong standard? What if our goal of righteousness is not to be like a pastor or podcaster, but what if our goal is to have the righteousness of Jesus? That he's our goal. He's our prize. He's our standard. He's the one that we pursue. He's the one that we go after. He's the one whose life we model ours after. That word righteousness, this is, I believe, important for us to understand. The word righteousness here in the Greek is dikesune. I probably pronounced that wrong. Uh, Someone will correct me later. But that Greek word means the state of him who is as he ought to be. Or I love how Dallas Willard summarized it. He said that righteousness is true inner goodness. True inner goodness. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus comes face to face with some of these Pharisees and he gives them pretty strong words. The words will be on the screen behind me. Strap in. It's not pretty for the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat but gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, this is to his face, not on like a tweet or a Facebook post or a voice memo. This is like face-to-face he's seeing the Pharisees, just so you understand that very clearly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Church family, let me just impart this to you. Righteousness first starts as an inward reality. So quit comparing yourself to the outward righteousness of somebody else. One, you are on your own journey towards becoming more like Jesus. So your righteousness isn't based on my good works or somebody else's good works, but you and God get right. And God wants to do through the Holy Spirit an interior work first and foremost. If you read some of these words behind me, they're not pretty. How many of us, if we were to be honest, we're guilty of cleaning the outside of our cup, but the inside is full of all sorts of icky stuff. How many people do we know that live as whitewashed tombs that appear beautiful, but on the inside are full of decay and death? Righteousness is first and foremost an inward reality. That God wants to do a deep work in and through you. Which means the work of righteousness is work. And it might not look productive at first or at long stretches of time. But that righteousness, lasting righteousness Jesus-saturated righteousness begins and is sustained by abiding in him and in him alone. And here's good news for us, church family. Jesus has given us a path towards righteousness, that that surpasses the Pharisees and scribes. And here's the best news of all. This righteousness is not through your effort. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone. It is only in and through him, the one who fulfilled the law and prophets. We're going to land in this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, He made the one... Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the perfecter of the law and the prophets, our Messiah, our Savior, our King, our God, who did not know sin, on the cross became sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And with this verse in mind, I want to key in on two phrases that will hopefully help us as we consider what it would look like for us now to begin to take a step forward towards righteousness. The first thing is the phrase, in him. The passage didn't say that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It begins 
with an abiding relationship with Jesus. Righteousness cannot be divorced from Jesus. And remember Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees. They were the ones that were doing the external deeds without the internal transformation. They were trying to do the work without him. And there are so many people in our world who are trying to do the work without Jesus. Trying to live their own righteous standard, their own righteous way, to their own devices, under their own power. And no wonder why in those circles there's rampant burnout, exhaustion, and frustration. But for us who are pursuing a righteousness that is rooted in him, then we as active but also passive in this middle state where we allow the spirit to do the transformative work in us, but we must play the active role of releasing the things that the spirit reveals to us that aren't good. I'm gonna be pretty blunt here, but if you have an issue with lust, maybe you shouldn't just pray that Jesus would get rid of it. Maybe you should do some work to create boundaries so that you wouldn't. If you have a problem with overspending, maybe you should like actually just get some money out and you could only spend that much. Because the work of internal transformation, yes, it is in him. Hallelujah and amen. The result of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness is not based on you, but we have an active role. In him, we need Jesus. We need him desperately. We need the spirit to transform our hearts, our thoughts, our identities. We need the spirit to lead, guide, convict, correct, and empower us. This work of righteousness cannot be done on our own. It must be done in him. And this leads to my last point, that we might become the righteousness of God, but the key word there is become. More often than not in the kingdom of God, overnight transformation stories aren't reality. Sometimes they might happen you might allow the spirit to do a deep work in you and you might instantly get delivered from some kind of addiction to sin or whatever it is. There might be that instant story of you turn your life over to Jesus and instantly you're just a peaceful person without anxiety or fear or worry. But more often than not, the pursuit of righteousness in the way of Jesus is a process. Pete Cazero said it this way in emotion, emotionally healthy spirituality. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. And the task of discipleship is to get Jesus more and more into your bones. For those of you that are like around that like millennial age now, we were like, man, we don't want to become like our parents, but we're realizing, oh my goodness, I'm becoming more like my parent. I'm having that realization. I'm more like my dad than I care to admit. My dad's a good guy. If my dad's listening, love you, dad. But it's true. For many of us, we have accepted Jesus into our lives, and that is so beautiful. If you've made that decision, it's the best decision of your life. 
for Jesus to be the Lord and Savior. But yet that deep work of internal transformation, the work of righteousness, of aligning your life with the life of Jesus is a process. That process of becoming will most likely take your entire life. But that that is a process that is worth it. Because if you've tasted and seen what the world has to offer, it pales in comparison to what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has to offer. Love without bound. Grace unimaginable. Eternal salvation, purpose, meaning in this life and the life to come. And that Jesus is in our sights. He is the one whose righteousness we are pursuing. And may we become the people of love to those who know us best. That we would live a righteous life, not just on a Sunday morning at 2915 Townway, or just when we're hanging out with one person or another, but that we would allow the deep abiding work of Jesus to transform us to become people of love to those we know best. That we would be a church of people who are pursuing the righteousness of God, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. With these next few moments, I don't know what you came in here carrying. I don't know where you are at in your relationship with Jesus. I don't know where you're at in your, your sanctification, your pursuit of Jesus, where you are at in your transformation. Maybe you came in here and you're carrying that weight of whether it's shame, guilt, sin, condemnation, whatever you're feeling. Maybe you came in here with more questions and answers about Jesus. I just want to give you space to encounter Jesus right where you're at. Because in our process of becoming, it's important that we have a continual relationship with Jesus. That we have conversation, that we speak with him, listen to him. Because maybe he might reveal something to you about your life that maybe you need to surrender to the spirit. So we're just gonna give a moment for you to just be quiet before Jesus, lift before him whatever it is that's on your heart. Then after a little bit, I'll pray and then we'll end with a song. But let's give some space for you and Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the wisdom that is found within the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for your encouragement, for your conviction. And 
thank you that you have set a standard for us by fulfilling the law and the prophets, fulfilling all that they were meant for us, paying the price for the penalty of our sin, and raising again so that we could have life and abundant life in you, here, now, and forever. And I pray that as we pursue your way, as we surrender our hearts, our minds, and our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, that you would meet us. That we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit is doing. And God, it's my great desire that we individually, but we as a church, would not be a perfect church. That we wouldn't be a group of people who just know all the right things to say and the right things to do but that we would authentically and wholeheartedly pursue you. Bumps, scars, bruises, doubts and all. And that in our wrestling, in our triumph, in everything in between, that you would be the object of our affection. And that we would be a people that are becoming more like you every single day. Would you continually, Jesus, be glorified and magnified in our midst and in our lives? We love you. We love you. And we pray these things in your sweet and precious name. Amen.